Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, December 10th, 2020. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And with us today, commentary tech columnist or tech commentary columnist, commentaries tech commentary columnist, James B. Meggs. Hi, Jim. How are you? I'm doing great. Great to be here. So uh, we uh, talked about your coming on last week. Little did I realize that uh, following on the article you have in the December 2020 issue of Commentary, we're living in a new space age, would we uh, have you on just uh, 12 hours or 16 hours or something after uh, Elon Musk's SpaceX tested a giant rocket, the purpose of which I believe is to prelimin- start the preliminary process for taking a trip to Mars. Is that right? That's right. And they call it the Starship, and it's a much larger rocket than the uh, Falcon that they've been flying to, um, they've been using to launch the Dragon capsules that they send to the International Space Station. And this will be ultimately, you know, something more like the, the, when it's all complete, the scale of the Saturn V rockets of the Apollo era that can launch, launch huge payloads. Right now, they're only testing what would be the upper section, the upper stage of the rocket. So they've done a series of tests. This, I think, was their eighth test. And it was a spectacular success, success until the last couple of seconds. <laughs> you know, what they do is they, it's called a hop test. It flies up and then kind of does a belly flop, floats down through the atmosphere. Then when it's a couple thousand feet off the ground, the rockets turn back on. It reorients, it reorients itself vertically and comes in for a, a slow, beautiful landing. But that part's always been hard. They've been practicing this with other craft and it's taken a while to perfect it. So this one came in too fast and it, it went up in a spectacular fireball. But the people at SpaceX seem to feel like, okay, well, we got the data we wanted. That was a pretty good test. Too bad we lost another rocket, but that's the way things go in the space business. I mean, so basically these rockets are designed to be reusable. That's one of the uh, extraordinary things about them since if you remember the the space age that we were talking about, of course, they built these gigantic Saturn rockets. And if you if they ever reopen anything, uh, if you go to the Kennedy Space Center in, uh, in Florida, uh, if you're like going to Disney World or something, it's basically an, an hour drive from Disney World uh, you go to the Kennedy Space Center and you can actually see two, there are two remaining rockets from the Apollo Saturn days because they didn't do Apollo 18 or Apollo 17 or something like that. And they built the rockets and the rockets are there unused. And you, you can't believe the scale of these things. I mean, they are, uh, one rocket is the literally almost the length of a football field and you can walk under it or walk beside it. There's one hanging in the in the air. There's one like down at eye level, um, and just the 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 magni- the you could see what an unbelievable accomplishment this was from the because the the gargantuan nature of this thing and the idea that you can build one and then have it even theoretically, if not practically, as yet 
come back and just like land like a like a plane and then get loaded up with fuel again and used again is is you know is like one of those shakespearean you know what a piece of work is a man how noble in reason that we could even begin to think of doing this it is really it's incredible and they've been doing this for a while now with their falcon 9 rocket landing the um the lower stage on a barge out in the ocean. They've got a couple of barges they use for this. And for years, you would see them come in, they would try to land, and then they would they would skitter off or blow up. Uh, they didn't really have much fuel left in them. But, um, you know, it, they, it took them a long time to get that perfected. Now they're nailing the landing just, just about every time. And then taking these things, cleaning them up, refueling them and using them again. And that's part of the reason SpaceX has been able to bring down the cost of launching cargo so dramatically. So Elon Musk, the head of SpaceX. So this, this article, by the way, uh, we're living in a new space age. We should, we should discuss in detail uh, because you are positing. Uh, and, and I think we have even more reason with Operation Warp Speed to sort of talk about it. You are positing that uh, after the uh, totally top-down nature of the uh, Apollo, Mercury and Apollo programs and the idea that basically the uh, political leadership of the United States said, we are going to do this. We, you know, uh, John F. Kennedy said, we will send a man to the moon and then bring him back home safely within the decade. And heaven and earth was moved to make this happen, but it was entirely a top-down experience that we are now finally transitioning into uh, something that is a much more practical and long-term strategy, which is not expecting all these things to be done by Washington and NASA and Houston and all of this, but, but, but as some version of what you call a, a public-private partnership, which is where Operation Warp Speed comes in, obviously, that um, the government set as a sort of, as a, contract giver set these multiple drug companies uh, to work uh, with the idea that both competition, speed, and money could, you know, create, could put them in the position of creating the vaccine that could get us out of this pandemic. Right. And what the government did on warp speed, which is really smart, is it primed the pump with a lot of initial funding, but in particular, it promised to buy the drug. You know, that's the big risk. If you're developing uh, uh, any kind of pharmaceutical, will there actually be a market for it if you can get it through testing? So by promising that they would, they promised Pfizer they would buy 100, 100 million doses. Uh, now looks like we might be trying to buy more. But it gave those companies the, the safety they needed to uh, not only rush these drugs uh, through production, I mean, through testing, but also get ready to produce all these doses without even knowing if they were going to pass, without knowing for sure if they were going to pass, you know, they were going to be approved. So it's extremely risky, and the government helped reduce that risk. In the end, the, the companies will make their profits, which they should. I think it's a pretty good system. What, what NASA did in spaceflight is really revolutionary. Since the early days of space, the government would hire a contractor, Lockheed Martin or whoever, or a combination of contractors to build whatever rocket uh, NASA wanted to NASA's specifications. NASA would design it, own it, fly it, it with help from the contractors, but it was the government's rocket. 
And the government also would cover any cost overruns. So as they developed these things, it was constantly tweaking and changing what they wanted. So it was kind of like building a house and constantly redesigning it as you go. The, as a result, the cost of everything NASA did was just getting more and more expensive. It was taking longer and longer to get anything built that they could actually fly. And then in, um, the, in about 2006, NASA said, what if we offer a contract to a private space company to use one of their rockets to fly the cargo we need to get cargo up to the International Space Station. It was, a, it was like a pebble in a pond. It wasn't a very big program, but SpaceX was one of the companies that jumped at it and took some years, but eventually they were able to prove to NASA that they could deliver cargo safely to the, uh, to the International Space Station. And by 2012, they started doing this. And since then, they've been doing it routinely. Yeah, so we, we talk a lot about um, <clears throat> SpaceX. They're not the only firm in this field. You have uh, Bezos Blue Origins and Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic and Northrop Grumman's Orbital, and they're all in competition, which is great. Um, but as you said, the objective here is mostly to resupply the ISS. And Musk talks about going to Mars, and that's a great, you know, that would be a fantastic achievement, a spectacular human achievement. But the the value of going to Mars in the long term is really just prestige um, for now. What I'm excited about and what would turn this into a, a self-sustaining model is the private enterprise in space. And that's not, that's not an unproven thing. On spec, they have, there have been interest in, in private industries and individuals who wanted you know, have tested orbital hubs where you, you know, you can stay there for a while and, and commercial ventures where you can use, you know, almost no gravity and vacuum conditions to, to develop products and develop drugs and develop micro trips and maybe transit, tra you know, transit across the globe in an hour from New York to, to Sydney for $20,000. That's the sort of thing that people are talking about. And how far away is that? Because that's when we start to get a self-sustaining uh, private space industry. Well, we actually, we have a self-sustaining private space industry now, not for factories in space and that kind of thing, but for satellites. You know, we've had, we've got uh, privately owned GPS satellite, I mean, privately owned communication satellites. We've got, uh, you know, all kinds of remote sensing, privately owned equipment. This has been going on for a long time. So there's been a private space industry and there have been some companies that launched those satellites. In fact, around the world, SpaceX is in competition with a major European consortium and a group of, of American companies called the United Launch Alliance. So there's a thriving business in launching cargo for the Department of Defense, for, uh, for, uh, for NASA, and for, uh, and for private clients that is very profitable. So this is how SpaceX has been making its money. Only a small fraction of its total flights go to the International Space Station. But you're right, this, there's this idea that once we can get the cost down low enough, different private businesses can figure out what they wanna do in space. There's even things you could do leaving Earth orbit to go and you know, get and some asteroid that's full of platinum or various precious metals and bring that back and mine an asteroid. There's a number of companies literally looking into that right now. So there are a lot of possibilities. They used to seem really far off. Now they don't seem so far off. We're, we've got a whole bunch of companies pretty close on SpaceX's heels. As you said, Blue Origin, the Jeff Bezos company, they've been 
building engines, doing tests. They're very close to becoming a, a, a major player that we'll be hearing about as much as we hear about SpaceX. So it's, I think it's exciting. And I think that part of what's making this work is that, is that it's competition, it's private enterprise. And how cool is it that all these billionaires want to spend their money building rockets. I mean, I think so that's kind of neat. I have a question about that, actually. It is, it's, it's fascinating to me, but I wonder, um, the one thing that does seem to be missing, and this has been on my mind since I've been reading all the obituaries of Chuck Yeager, the sort of famous test pilot, the right stuff guy, you know, the, the yeah. sort of human being who we kind of don't appear to create anymore. <laughs> um, now, Elon Musk gets a lot of attention. Bezos gets a lot of attention. They, they do have a kind of controversial uh, slash, you know, swashbuckling aura about them when they talk about their space projects. But I wonder what we have lost, or if we've lost, uh, in your opinion, any of the kind of um, in the inspirational astronaut figure, if you will, you know, the kind of those guys who really did take risk, because we've been talking a lot about risk, but a lot of the risk is economic for these guys. The physical risk of space was part of what made it so fascinating and and truly awesome to certainly to kids growing up. I grew up in Florida. We used to watch all the all the space shuttle launches. Um, is how does that fit into this new era of public private partnership of space exploration? Well, I mean, there are astronauts flying. They're not celebrities the way they used to be, partly because there isn't a whole PR industry around making <laughs> them famous. I mean, one of the great things in Tom Wolfe's The Right Stuff book was how you know, there was a very conscious effort to turn these guys into heroes. You know, yeah. they were on the cover of Life magazine. They had to, they, you know, the NASA was always trying to cover up all of their philandering around and all the fun they were having down in, in the coast of Florida um, and making them look like, you know, straight arrow, um, right men. stuff guys. Yeah. Uh, whereas, and part of the irony of that book was that, that, that Jaeger, who everyone admired as the most badass pilot in history, the guy who broke the sound barrier and many other things, no one knew who he was until uh, it really, I mean, he wasn't completely unknown, but he wasn't famous. And, and the, the book, The Right Stuff, is part of what made him much more famous than he'd been. Right. So we don't have that industry around our astronauts today, but there's still, I think, you know, pretty admired, and and um, some of the astronauts on the on the space station have managed to, you know, become somewhat famous in social media, and and so I think they're still inspiring, but Part you know, it's not it's not what it was in the '60s, that's for sure. I mean, I would imagine that's in large part because um, the context then was the Cold War, right? So so um, lifting these guys up was it was a matter of. Um, uh, uh, national pride at a, at a time of, of this um, great power competition. Well, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, that's one thing that, that Wolf talked about in that wonderful book was this idea of solo combat, you know, two opposing forces come together and they each send out one warrior to represent them, like, <laughs> you know, like the David and Goliath story. And that's kind of what the astronauts were. They were representing the whole country. Today, it's more like really cool, highly trained people with really cool, risky jobs. It doesn't have quite the same intensity, but I still think it's something that people can aspire to. Well, and it might in the future if, if our major competitor in China does what it intends to do in space, right? I mean, well, this is, yeah. the, the, I mean, I'm, I apologize, I'm interrupting John, and we want to get to you real quick, but there's a the government dimension here that hasn't really been talked about yet and should be talked about. What you talked briefly 
about licensing. And that's something actually that Robert Zubrin has written about um, that Congress should actually get in the game. And much like they issued uh, licensing and property licenses on spec for territories in the West um, that had, they had never seen that nobody owned. And that was just, you know, it was speculative and got you out into the, to the wilderness that they should be issuing property licenses on spec for, as you said, asteroids in the belt and properties and places, you know, areas in the moon and on Mars and what have you. And that would actually incentivize the kind of development that they're talking about. But the immediate threat, that's kind of science fictional, the immediate threat, obviously, to this whole industry is the sort of thing that people scoffed at when Donald Trump created uh, Space Force, is the prospect of a military dimension in space, which is not only real, but present. We had anti-satellite tests from China as, as long ago as 2007. Every vehicle in space, just about every vehicle in space is a dual use vehicle, meaning it could be turned into a kill vehicle at a moment's notice and essentially kamikaze itself into another satellite. And we have the problem, increasing problem of orbital junk that is building up to a degree that people are getting very worried about and that can be, have a cascading effect like, a, like splitting an atom, one thing bounces into another and then it bounces into two more and then it bounces into 13 and it becomes exponential. And after five years, you have no way to exit the atmosphere. And that's the sort of thing right. that really keeps me up at night. And the, the prospect, that's not something a private enterprise can, can deal with. That's a military, right. and that's, a, that's a, a, a prospect for the federal government. Are they aware of this? Oh yeah, yeah, they're very aware of it. And I mean, there's actually two levels of the problem. One level is kind of a tragedy of the commons situation where no one really has to pay to be present. They don't have to pay anybody else to be present in space, but when their satellite runs out of fuel or falls apart or crashes into something else and makes a bunch of space junk, it becomes a problem for every, everyone. It's like pollution. So there, there is, so this is a problem by itself. And then when China tested this anti-satellite weapon and they blew up a defunct satellite and sent shrapnel in all directions, that was a huge problem. It made the problem of space junk much, much worse. And we could be talking about something as small as, uh, I mean, a BB would be large, something, uh, uh, even a right. grain of sand yeah. could, it can, be, uh, can be dangerous. Uh, if, you, if you saw the movie Gravity, you know, it was very fanciful, but it was also really depicted the risk of this kind of cascading situation where space junk, you know, things are crashing into each other and creating more and more of this junk. And as you say, it could get to a point where the density of of debris flying around in orbit is so intense that you wouldn't be able to safely put people in orbit. Um, and, and any venture into deep space, we, we now believe, will probably involve some staging of supplies and fuel and other things in orbit. We need stations in orbit where, from which we can launch our more deep space missions. So this space junk thing is a real problem. Broader is China is you know, very militaristic. So if they're going to space, they intend to, to dominate it. And I think this is, this is going to be a challenge to us. And I don't know about the Space Force. I'm not sure it's the right approach necessarily, but we, sh we need to be getting more prepared than we are for, for dealing with these risks. What's the problem with Space Force? I will brook no dissent. Okay. <laughs> I wanna, okay, I want to talk a little about, about, about the culture, which I think Christine was talking about, and, and a lot of these issues. Um, and I would take Space Force 
uh, as an example. So the interesting thing happened, which is that you know, Trump announced Space Force. People laughed and scoffed very similarly, by the way, to the way that people laughed and scoffed when Ronald Reagan announced the Strategic Defense Initiative. And there was all this, oh, it's Star Wars. He won Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Strategic Defense Initiative was really the last hammer in the nail of the coffin of the Soviet Union because while while smarty pants uh, liberal uh, science writers at the New York Times like William Broad thought it was ridiculous the Kremlin did not think it was ridiculous the Kremlin was terrified of it the Kremlin understood that this meant a new kind of financial space race for them and that they really weren't going to be able to match it, which is one of the reasons that Gorbachev went with perestroika, and basically the whole thing cascaded out of you know out of existence, uh, because you look at this and and people who don't know what they're talking about or aren't interested in these issues go, oh, this is just you know, this is just Hollywood nonsense. Well, let's talk about Hollywood nonsense. So Space Force comes out, everybody makes fun of it. Uh, Netflix announces it's going to make a comic series called Space Force with Steve Carell, uh, made by the guy who made The Office, Greg Daniels. So the whole obvious intent was to create some kind of a workplace comedy about how ludicrous Space Force was. And from the conception to the execution, something happened, which is that the creative team making it went you know what? This is kind of interesting. <laughs> uh, maybe, you know, like the people who are going to run it, like these are general, you know, these are like serious military people. And, you know, there is stuff going on in space. And I don't know. So the show has this very peculiar tone, which is that it kind of started out being mash and then turned into a slightly comic version of the right stuff. It's got this very, very strange tone. Um, so, uh, that, and then also the attitude of Elon Musk, uh, in jet, the uh, approach toward Elon Musk, which is that the smarty pants Twitterati have basically treated him as though he is a lunatic, nutball, you know, pot smoking, sybaritic idiot, uh, and, you know, goes on Joe Rogan and smokes pot and then the SEC looks into him and all of this. And meanwhile, he is now the second richest person on Earth, the second richest person who has ever lived on the planet Earth. Uh, and because uh, what he is doing and the things that he is doing seem to be very, um, uh, how would you say it, uh, very uh, appealing to investors, to Wall Street and uh, to a world that is looking forward instead of just looking up its nose at innovation and sort of Thomas Edison-like creative ferment. So, I mean, I think the, I've been watching this Elon Musk story since his early days of getting into this field. And even when I was at Popular Mechanics, we used to do this thing called the Breakthrough Awards and we would give, uh, we would give an, an, an award to various innovators in various tech fields, including a particular, what we call the leadership award. And I remember arguing with my staff that we should give one to Elon Musk. And a couple of people thought, well, not quite time yet. He hasn't really proved himself yet. And then, you know, the, the time came and it actually turned out to be, he was really just getting started. The stuff that he's accomplished be, be, between 
the valuation of Tesla and, but especially what's happening in, in space is, is really unprecedented for any single entrepreneur that I can think of. You mentioned Edison, that's a pretty good model. Who, somebody who succeeded in all these different, very different fields. So, you know, I think the days of people looking down their nose at Musk are, have faded somewhat. He just has one success after another, clearly a quirky guy. I think some people might feel he could be a little more disciplined in his communications. I, I think that sometimes. He goes off the deep end a little bit once in a while. I remember during that whole, uh, when the kids were trapped in the cave, he kind of went off on a tear, criticizing some of the rescuers or something. It was a little little off. But, yeah. uh, I, but you know, maybe you have to be a little off to be that willing to yeah. go that far as an entrepreneur. I mean, that's what's interesting is that he is really the only person I can think of uh, on earth, who, who follows this model, which is he is like the engineering billionaire. Um, the other ones we can think of, not, not, that, not that Bill Gates and Steve Jobs weren't, because they, of course, created uh, software uh, and stuff like that, uh, but, but, and, and, and so did uh, Bezos, but that he is like the tinkerer in the garage, and what's interesting to him is he makes a car, he makes a train, and he's making a spaceship. This is very much the early model and kind of combines the things that Christine was talking about, right? Which is uh, he is, though he is not himself piloting the aircraft. Uh, so he's not Lindbergh or Earhart or, or uh, Chuck Yeager or the astronauts. Um, but he is the guy in the garage. And there is a, there's a, was a fantastic TV movie in the late seventies with of all people, Andy, Andy Griffith called, called something like salvage two or something like that, which is about a guy literally living on a farm in, I don't know, Tennessee or something who builds a rocket out of, you know, spare parts and shoots himself up into space. And it's a sort of delightful, funny thing but that was always the question. If you go to the, if you go to the, there's a great museum called the uh, Museum of Aviation on Long Island. Uh, Long Island, by the way, was the cradle of aviation. Actually, it's called the Cradle of Aviation Museum, because even though the Wright brothers took off their took their flight off at, at Kitty Hawk in in North Carolina, almost all of the early uh, aviation stuff was done on Long Island, particularly. Uh, near uh, what's now a mall called Roosevelt Field, which was literally a runway, uh, and helicopters, planes, which where Lindbergh took off from, all of that stuff. Um, and if you go there, it's just like these people, they were like, they were hobbyists. They built kits. They were, they were crashing these things all over the place so that we could learn how to fly things. And of course, that feeling, that kind of initiative that we take for granted as part of the as part of the way in which the 20th century became the 20th century, um, there just doesn't seem to be as much of. And maybe Elon Musk is a model for everybody growing up the way that some of these guys were for uh, people who came after them. In some ways, he has some of the panache of Howard Hughes, you know, before he went off the deep end, because right. he was, you know, an innovator, an entrepreneur in, uh, in a lot of different different fields, but especially in aviation, but also, you know, he went out with movie stars and he lived, yeah. lived this very glamorous celebrity life. And right. I think some people are a little uncomfortable with Musk's uh, tendency to, to behave that way. But I, I think it's, maybe it's part of the package. Well, I think we all are. And, and that's what I'm saying where I feel like I, 
was guilty of this same kind of poo-pooing around the time that he got into this fight with the people who were rescuing the kids from the cave. And he said, you know, he said one of his rivals was a pedophile. I mean, I don't know. It was, it, it seemed completely bananas. And he does sometimes, he says, I've never slept. I mean, he says stuff. He may be bipolar. He's got that, that those, those qualities, but there is that thing. These, if you can't be, if you're, if you don't have megalomania, if you don't have that kind of attitude, you know, are you going to be the kind of person you're going to be? Now, listen, we have to cut this podcast ridiculously short uh, because Zoom apparently has decided to change its policies and force and is telling us that it's going to cut us off. So uh, unless we pay them, I guess. So we're going to have to look into that. This is one of the few times we've done this on Zoom because uh, we, uh, since there are five of us in the podcast and usually we use a program that lets us do four. So we're gonna have to go. I'm really sorry, Jim Meggs. Uh, we're living in a new space age. Thanks so much for being with us. Commentarymagazine.com for Abe, Noah, and Christine. I'm John Podhortz. Keep the candle burning. Mm-hmm.